tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. And welcome to our second season of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. After the break we had a couple of weeks ago, we're ready to dive right back into our coverage of the Tangent Universe line of books. And this time out, we're starting to cover the second wave of the Tangent line, starting with a book dealing with a literal Dark Knight, The Batman, written in pencil by Dan Jurgens and finished in ink by Klaus Janssen. And in keeping with the tangent idea of taking named characters and telling vastly different stories with them, this Batman does just that, as he was once an ancient knight who fought alongside and against the legendary King Arthur, and now wages a war in the modern era. But how does a medieval knight fight foes in the modern era? Well, you'll soon find out as I, Sean Engel, and my esteemed co-host Michael Bradley delve into this tale. Hey Michael, how's it going? Holy introductions, Batman! <laughs> Robin? <laughs> wait, wait. I don't want to be Robin. No, don't be don't be Robin. And don't forget about Robin. Don't forget about Robin. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that, that line. I want to slap him every time I hear that. <laughs> but yeah, we're covering uh, we're covering Batman this time out and it's a it's a very different type of Batman, but mm-hmm. it's exactly what you would expect from the Tangent Universe line of books. Yep. Uh, um we've also uh, didn't get a chance to cover email last time out and we've got a pretty good uh pretty good uh, build-up of it. So do you want to go ahead and start with the email right now? Yes. Okay, I will start out with the first one here. This one comes from the Irredeemable One himself. It's from Shag, which you may know from the Fire and Water podcast and FirestormFan.com. He writes in with the subject line saying, Parallel Lines is my jam. Thank you very much. It's Hopefully it's strawberry, because I love strawberry. Mm, he says, jam. Holy crap, I love this show. I started listening to Parallel Lines a few weeks ago. I'm sorry. He said, I started listening to Parallel Lines a few weeks ago. If I had to describe your podcast, I'd say it's a bit like crack. Well, the first one's free, Shag. I desperately want the next episode before I've even finished the one I'm listening to. Immediately, I fell in love with the Tangent Comics when they were first released back in 1997. Here was a new universe to explore created by some of my favorite creators. Reliving them with y'all, with y'all has been a real blast. From your entertaining synopses to your insightful commentary, your podcast is must-listening for me whatever a new episode is released. Well, thank you. That's that's nice to hear, especially from, from Shag, a person who puts out, I think, some really great podcasts over there mm-hmm. at Fire and Water. He says some random thoughts. Right out of the gate, the opening song is fantastic. 
I have no idea what the song is, but my kids tell me it's popular. Oh, Shag, you're so old. Yes, that's how unhip I am. I guess that comes from living a retro life, reading comics mostly from the 1970s to the 1990s. I can't believe he doesn't know who Imagine Dragons is, but uh, okay, whatever. (laughs) He says next, it's worth noting that when these books were released, we didn't have an order or reading guide. All nine books from the first wave came out on the same day. You had to guess which order to read the books, but that didn't stop us from studying the cover trade dress looking for clues to to the reading order. You guys are covering two a month. Imagine reading them all on the same day, an incredibly immersive experience. It's like binge-watching an entire season of a TV show on Netflix. I certainly didn't read in the order that you're following, yet I still grasp the overarching plots. That's a testament to the project or to the project coordination that they all can be read in any order and still follow along. Yeah, I kind of have to agree. This was we did this specifically in order of how they were put in the uh, trade paperback, right? Right. So, yeah, I can imagine just picking all of these up at one in one sitting and trying to figure out how they work together. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to read them in a specific order, but I think the way that it was put in the trade and the way that we did it, you know, worked for as well as it could. Mm-hmm. And, and, and something else he just said there, this podcast is, is a lot different than other podcasts where normally, you know, you would cover – like over on just one of the guys, you're covering books one a week that came out one a month. We're here, we're covering books that came out all at once, but spread out. So it's mm-hmm. sort of the opposite. Yeah, that, that is that is kind of interesting. That because yeah, this all came out at one specific time. This all came out as one lump sum, and we're kind of spreading it out. And it would be difficult to try and cover everything in one lump sum, I guess. So it's it's probably best for you listeners that you don't have, you know, sixteen hour long podcasts. <laughs> so no one wants that. Uh, Shaq continues. I don't recall. Have you taken the time to explain the fifth week event concept to listeners? Younger folks may have no idea what it's about. Also, some readers may not realize a motivating factor behind the fifth week events to help uh, the comic shops. If these events hadn't been coordinated, there wouldn't have been any new comics those weeks. Most comic shops make their money on new comics, sometimes living week to week on their bills. No new comics those weeks would have put a significant fiscal strain on some store survival. And I don't know. I think Shag, it hasn't been, I don't think, it'll be a release by the time this comes out, but I don't think Shag, I think Shag mentioned on my show what a fifth week event was, but I don't think we've specifically talked about it over here. All right. Um, Well, basically what it was is comics... American comics are released on a monthly schedule, and most uh, they usually come out on Wednesdays. And most months have four Wednesdays. So back in the '90s, there was that fifth four four uh, is it four Wednesdays a yeah. year? Yeah, yeah, okay. four four months a year. There'd be an extra Wednesday. There'd be an extra Wednesday. So during a short time in the '90s, DC came up with this fifth week idea where they would have a special event during that fifth week. Uh, they did two waves of tangent books. They did an event called Girl Frenzy, which focused... Uh, there was like five or six books that focused on female characters from the DC Universe. They did... Um, oh, I, I know Shag talked about this, on, and I'm forgetting as well. I want to say Circle of Fire was one of them, but I don't yeah, think... which you're covering right now over on Just One of the Guys. Um but yeah, there are, there are multiple, and it was essentially a way to keep 
comic books coming out during the entirety of the month instead of having you know one week where no new comics would come out, thus allowing people giving people not a reason or having people not have a reason to come to the comic book store that week to pick up new comics. Right. And I always assumed it was just a way to fill the publishing schedule on the, that fifth week when they didn't have as many books. But, you know, as Shag points out it, and I never even thought about this, but it, it was a help to comic shops too, because, you know, that would give them something new to put on the stands for those shops that do, you know, live basically week to week and it wouldn't be such a strain on them. Mm Hmm. Uh, continuing on, Jack says, she mentioned the Flash series was so different in tone from the rest of the books. Personally, I really liked that. It made it feel more like a more fleshed-out universe. If you look at the old days at Marvel and DC, they had a variety of books with different tones. And in the 1990s, you had adventurous Spider-Man books right next to hard-boiled Punisher alongside, alongside romps like Slapstick. There is room for all kinds of books in a shared universe. And I can't agree with Shag more. And that's – I think we mentioned that in our last episode as we were wrapping yes. up. That <laughs> we wobbly timey-wimey. That, that we definitely enjoyed the fact that uh, that these books didn't have to follow the same tone. There was cohesiveness between them, but each each book had a different type of tone. And I, I like the fact that comics have that, and I like that about these uh, these versions of comics. Uh, he continues saying, my thanks to Sean for attacking me at every chance he got on the Flash episode. Love you too, bro. You're welcome, Shag. I can't believe you didn't say that the Flash herself was hot on my behalf. Did I not say that? I thought I did. <laughs> yes, the clueless overtones. She is a teenager, so you can't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I can't. Uh, yeah, that'd be very, very wrong. Yes, the clueless overtones of the Flash were strong enough to smack you in the face. I was okay with that. Alicia, Stil- Alicia Silverstone was America's sweetheart at the time, and Gary Frank was just the right artist to bring that to life. Well, I can agree with that. You pondered a bit about the Flash's mother dressing in a superhero costume, yet she was powerless. If you think of the probably on-target with the pageant mom theory, I think you're probably on-target with the pageant mom theory. However, it's also worth remembering that the pop culture references in the Atom regarding superheroes. Superheroes were all the rage, i.e. there were sitcoms about superheroes. Maybe this was a universe maybe in this universe it's trendy or commonplace to wear super suits. Like Super Plumber might wear a costume as a promotional gimmick. Oh, I'd love to see the Super Plumber comic. Take the Geek Squad distinctive look, but as a superhero. Maybe Flash's mom was just in fashion. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, uh, if the Adam sort of, you know, define the characteristics of this universe and made people accept superheroes, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if people walked around dressed like superheroes all over the place. It might be a fashion thing. Even though it's month away, I'm really sad knowing this show has a finite life. Do you plan to cover all the tangent appearances beyond the first two waves, such as Dwayne McDuffie's GLA issues and tangent Superman's reigns? Well, if you listened to last episode, you know we will, so we're going to be we're going to be covering it all, so look forward to that, Shag. He says... Uh, keep up the great work. Can't wait for the next episode. The Irredeemable Shag. Well, thank you very much, Shag, for writing in. That's great to hear your comments about this. And yes, uh, anytime that I can attribute uh, someone being hot to you, uh, Shag, I will make sure that I do it in the uh, in the book. That was a really great email. Yes, thank you very mm-hmm. much, Shag. Do we want to plug Shag's shows for him while we're... Yeah, definitely. Uh, Shag is the uh, host of the Fire Fan... 
firestormfan.com uh he's uh which is the firestorm blog he also does the uh fire and water podcast over at uh fire and water podcast.blogspot.com i think uh he does the who's who podcast which you can also find on the fire and water feed and he also does a uh show called who true freaks which you can find over at two true it's a doctor who podcast time travel yep and he hosts that with who oh um um i don't know some some idiot <laughs> oh wait it's me yes he he hosts that with me yeah shag and i get together every once in a while and do uh doctor who talk so yeah it's less confusing than the uh, time travel story that we dealt with last time so yeah. you can actually listen to that and understand it plus daleks yes daleks are always fun so uh, but next up is an email from frequent emailer Gene Hendricks, and this one comes in response to the Joker episode, which I think was episode six. Yep. Uh, but Gene writes, Sean and Michael, now that's more like it. Now, not only does this sound like a fun issue to read, but it does some world building. The possible tragic backstory for the Joker seems to have made her have a psychotic break, resulting in the off-the-wall personality. With that in mind, she sounds like another version of the Creeper, minus the red boa. It would be nice if modern comics had a sense of fun like this issue does, even just every now and again. Dark and gritty gets really annoying after a while. But I guess that qualifies me for the get-off-my-lawn cast as well. Gee. (laughs) Yeah, I, I will agree. I would love to see comics be able, every once in a while, just every once in a while, to have a fun little goofy issue i mean you see it infrequently in books but it it seems like nowadays most books are driven for the big action sequences and trying to keep the continuing storylines going on but uh having just these sort of little comedic one and done issues are are kind of nice and i think the joker was a nice balance between the sort of goofy humor and the uh you know the the drama that the tangent universe was trying to put forth yeah well if i can grab my cane here for a minute i i I just feel like you know even setting aside the ongoing storylines and the the never-ending crossovers of modern comics you know so many books just they they all have a monotonous tone across the board as far as the stories they're telling and it just you know having that diversity in the, in the, the lighter issues or the lighter books here and there would really help things out, I think. But Oh, I, I, I fully agree with you. But anyway. Uh, yeah. Tangent. Get off our lawn. Get off our lawn. <clears throat> uh, we also have another email from Gene Hendricks. This time it's about uh, the Nightwing show. It's subject titled Nightwing. He says, Michael and Sean, now this is more like it. 90s art issues aside, uh, 90s art issues aside, maybe everyone had a superpower for incredibly changing proportions back then. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. That's, that's it's, the Legion of Superheroes member that we never heard. <laughs> incredibly changing proportions, lad. Yes. I'd buy that. Uh, it sounds like you had a great world building issue. Of course, coming from my point of view, Den's story is great, and and we get that with some nice background on the super secret organization we keep seeing. No cloning, he says. Hmm. Someone's been watching Deep Space Nine recently. Oh, yeah, well, we did a did an episode about a, a clone on Deep Space Nine, so there you go. <laughs> you know, I think that the Joker is really more of a Moon Knight analog than a Batman one. Hmm. Moon Knight has several identities rather than Batman's single one, and they're pretty similar otherwise. I'm sure Professor Allen would agree. Gene. 
Uh, what do you think about that? Now, my knowledge of Moon Knight is pretty limited aside from I've read a few of his comics uh, back in the 80s um, and late, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, from what I know of him, yeah, maybe that would be a case that Joker might be a, a Moonlight analog, which is also a Batman analog for the DC or for the Marvel Universe. Aside from popping up on some podcasts here and there and maybe showing up in a story or two that I've read, I am wholly unfamiliar with Moon Knight. So well, I, know, okay. I know he has a white costume. We'll, we'll take your word for that on then, Gene, because, yeah, our experience with Moon Knight is limited at best. So there you go. Uh, but we also have some website comments uh, from Jadine, and she, she actually sent a flurry of them from, for different podcasts as she different episodes of the podcast as she was catching up uh the first one comes from episode four which again was the flash uh, episode and she writes this episode made me doubly happy because leah is my favorite tangent character and you guys just knocked it out of the park here i think i finally relearned how to breathe after the retelling of the story because you went classic 90s girl power for the music in the background <laughs> and then industrial metal for nightwing courtesy of ramstein of course and I just want to say, I'm going to brag a little bit here. I, I normally don't do this too much, but no one's picked up on it. Every song used in that episode was out in 1997 when these books were published. They were all 1997 songs. And I was very wow. proud of myself for being able to get enough music. I'm, I'm impressed. Now, now, I've got to assume that there was uh, – was it Wannabe at the end of Flash or which one, which one did you use? was the first one. Okay. Yeah, and then it went into, I think, Ramstein after that. Okay. And then Aqua, Barbie Girl. Oh, sweet lord. And then uh, Meredith Brooks. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had no idea those all came out in the same year. That's a, that's a wide variety of music. Oh, yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. From, from industrial German metal to poppy, forgettable, teeny music. Okay, there and, you go. And, and Aqua. And Aqua, yes. Anyway, Jadine continues. But unfortunately, you overlooked one detail about Leah herself. Yes, she's obsessed with with fashion. Poor Michael and his trauma over her clothes. Understandable, though. And seems to prefer going shopping rather than being a prim and proper superhero. But she's also smart. This is the detail that even non-podcast reviewers seem to overlook, and I can understand why. Just like her mother, who used to be an engineer before Leah's birth... Leah is also a semi-engineer of sorts. She's adept at tinkering and creating machines. Even if, even if it was for a movie, she was the one who advised on the technology, on the technology used, and also created the technology possible for the film to be in ooh holoscopic vision. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as being smarter than she looks. Maybe I just love her a lot and am biased, so I want to defend her good points. But that's. But that's in the dialogue, and it's the one thing people don't say about her. Other than that, I loved the episode. I laughed a lot, and even with my nitpicking, you guys respected her character more than others have, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Jadine. Yeah, um, I don't think that we – well, I'm certain that we kind of did pick on her being a, an analog to an Alicia Silverstone character. And maybe it's because the Alicia Silverstone character from that movie was – penned as sort of an airhead ditzy person that we didn't take into account the fact that she was the person who created the uh, holographic vision for the movie mm -hmm. and 
And to her credit, she was also able to create that light construct to help the person. So maybe we're kind of overlooking the fact that she's maybe playing up the sort of ditziness a bit to uh, maybe to fit in or just to kind of put people off from her being this smart. Maybe she's one of these people who is incredibly intelligent but you know doesn't want people to be put off by that so she plays up the more flirty kind of ditzy side Mm -hmm. and i think we brought up too that she was kind of um not infatuated that's that's entirely the wrong word but very much um kind of blind to her father's villainous ways or if she or, or at least willing to turn a blind eye because he was her father that's that's a better way to put it yeah i think yeah, I agree. I don't. And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean she's not very smart. She's just, you know, that's her father, and and you know, even though he does bad things, she's still going to love him and and be the mm-hmm. little, you know, daddy's girl. Well, and I think that's kind of what we got at the end of the at the end of the book. She yeah. that that wink at the end of the book was her showing that she knows what's going on. That she's she's knowledgeable of uh, what has happened, but despite the fact that you know she's just working with her character to to overlook that kind of stuff because of her affection towards her father right. even though she kind of thinks that something may be up with him but we also have another response from Jadine, and this one was for Parallel Lines episode number five, which was the Sea Devils issue. And she writes in at the website saying, whoa, I didn't expect to be mentioned here. Am I famous now? Uh, yes, you're famous now. Go everyone, and, uh, everyone who's talked about it on the show is famous. Go, go and uh, go and hobnob with uh, Angelina and Brad or <laughs> Brangelina or whatever they are. Uh, she says, you, "Your mention of Phantom Stranger is definitely what I meant by Green Lantern being similar. His Secret Origin comic, written by Alan Moore, had mul- multiple origins like she did, and either one of them did all four or none of them might be true." But it is true the GL comic does share similarities between DC's paranormal titles. No surprise, to be honest. As for the Sea Devils, yeah, even with the second 1998 run of Tangent, the Sea Devils is still the weakest in my opinion. Maybe you guys might have a different opinion when to get to some of those down the line, but I didn't like this comic mainly because of the art. To me, the art kind of lessened my enjoyment of the story, which was really heartening, but still on the edge of eh side in general. Still, we at least saw Busiek's interest and care for the story, and I'd rather have a good writer care for a story that might end up being only a one-issue than a band writer having to write many comics. Or maybe I'm just being optimistic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could agree with that. I think the thing that helped the Sea Devils issue was Busiek's writing and the fact that it was an engaging story because, yeah, the art – didn't really hold up like i said if you can take a look at the art and kind of attribute it to being a kirby homage that helps but if you're not looking at it that way then yeah the art is by far at least for me the least appealing for this run so yeah i mean one thing i like about kurt music is that you know even though i might not like all the stories he writes he always seems like he is like Jadine said, very interested and in, in, um, very invested in the story he's telling. So, and, and I have a lot of respect for somebody that does have a lot of heart in whatever they write, even if it's not something that I'm going to like in the end. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Busek is one of these people. When he writes something, he he puts a lot of effort into it. He's mm-hmm. not just one of those ones who sort of glosses over and is writing for a paycheck. He actually puts a lot of effort into it, and you know, works in you know when he when he has continuity, he works in tons of continuity. To the yes, story, oh, definitely. So. Yeah. Just to go back real quick to the beginning of her comment, she references Phantom Stranger, the Secret Origin comic. That's a reference to the uh, the Secret Origins series that DC had out in the mid-80s. They published an issue focused on the Phantom Stranger, and instead of revealing his actual origin, they pulled in four different writers, um, Alan Moore and Mike W. Barr and Paul Levitz, and I forget who the third or the fourth one is was. But anyway, they, they each presented a, like a, a different 10-page quote-unquote origin for the Phantom Stranger, which allowed them to do a secret origin about the character, but still keep his origin a mystery, which was a really uh, kind of an interesting solution to that problem. Hmm, that's interesting, because I've heard that in the uh, the second wave of the Tangent comics, we make it something like that with Green Lantern, you know, sort of varying stories mm-hmm. about uh, Green Lantern's origin. Yes. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. And if you're interested in hearing more about the Phantom Stranger Secret Origins issue, I'm pretty sure that Rob Kelly has covered it over at his Phantom Stranger blog. So, Ooh, Yeah, go check that out. Just a little plug. Uh, but our last comment for this episode is again from Jay Dean. This one's about episode six, which was the Joker episode. And she writes, I told you Laurie would pop up again. About Tangent's other appearances in books slash revisited. Tangent has appeared in Infinite Crisis number 6 in one panel and in Ion number 9 and 10. In regards to Ion, well, it's very interesting and there was tons of potential there for some Morrison-esque, Morrison-esque concepts, but the characters' dialogue are basically lifted from their original comics and rearranged to give some additional flow to the story. The characters themselves, the Atom, Flash, and Green Lantern, are the only ones who make physical appearances, are just wooden puppets with a goal. That makes absolutely no sense to me either, but that's how they were. To me, it felt like a cop-out job by Ron Mars, who was, spoiler, a tangent writer. Their goal, by the way, was to bring their world back into the living, since the events of Infinite Crisis merged all the worlds into one. I actually have no words about this particular episode. I know you must be happy with my ramblings. You guys hit all the points. Although the Cuban Missile Crisis Memorial issue to me was believable because in other countries there have been incidents of the government wanting to forget certain parts of their past. I think even in the United States there might have been one incident too, but that's another topic in a can of worms best left for another time. Oh wait, I did have words. Oops. <laughs> yeah, um I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know specifically what you might, you know, I could think maybe in uh, places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I don't know whether there are specifically memorials there to commemorate what happened there, the, the the kind of horrors that happened there. I know here in Oklahoma City, we have a uh, memorial for the uh, Murrah Building bombing that happened back in uh, 93. And obviously, they're still working on the Freedom Tower in New York City. So um, I'm, I'm certain there are specific things where tragic events happened that just kind of get covered up because we don't want to talk about them. But I think the major ones and, you know, something major like, Oh, the start of uh, essentially the start of world war three would be something that really wouldn't be 
forgotten all that easy. Yeah, just not in that short of a time. I, I when so many people died, I, I just have a hard time believing it would be covered up so quickly. But yeah, again, with the radioactive waste disposal center right in the center of it, maybe that's why they uh, that, just that could be that it. down. <laughs> but anyway, well, you ready to get into the issue? Yes, I am. Thanks, everyone, for writing in and yes. posting at the website. We really appreciate it. And uh, keep those, like we say, keep those cards and letters coming. We'd love to hear from you guys. Definitely. Definitely. But this episode, we are going to be talking about The Batman, number one, uh, which has a cover by Dan Jurgens and Klaus Jansen. And credits for the issue inside are Dan Jurgens, story and layout art, Klaus Jansen, finished art, Gregory Wright, colors, Comicraft, letters, Heroic Age Separations. Special thanks to Joe Illage, editor Eddie Berganza. Tangent based on concepts by Dan Jurgens, and the story is titled Covenant of Iron. A superpowered thief known as Prism slinks through the streets of London, soon breaking into daylight laboratories. All the while being unknowingly tracked by a mysterious armor-clad figure known as the Batman who has sought to bring her to justice for some time. Inside, Prism attempts to kidnap Dr. Imra Ardeen, but is interrupted by the Batman, who crashes into the scene via a completely awesome full-page splash. The sight of Imra stuns the Batman as she bears a striking resemblance to someone he calls Tasmia. And with the Batman in shock, and a timely intervention of building security, Prism is able to elude the armored knight, kidnapping the terrified doctor. The armored hero then soars off, soon returning to the castle of the Bat, where we discover the Batman is but a robotic emissary for the dweller of the castle, Sir William, former knight of King Arthur's court. Centuries ago, William and Arthur had a falling out, which resulted in William being banished from Camelot. Coaxed on by his lady Tasmia, William built his own kingdom, soon attacking Camelot. The battle came down to William and Arthur alone on the battlefield. As the two locked in combat, Tasmia revealed herself to be under the possession of Morgan Le Fay, who had taken over Tasmia with the purpose of gaining control of Camelot by using William as an unknowing dupe. William is able to slay Le Fay and save Camelot, but for his original betrayal, is cursed by Merlin to never leave the Castle of the Bat until he is atoned for his sins. Thus, William used magic to construct the disembodied armor which has become known as the Dark Knight, or the Batman, and now wonders if freeing Imra might be able to save his lost love and thus break the curse. Elsewhere, Prism brings Imra before her employer, King Cobra, a techno-organic snake-humanoid mutant who is so bizarre and insane, I'm pretty sure even Bob Haney would say, whoa, 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 let's think about this. <laughs> Cobra wants Imra to bring his computers back online after, after they were knocked out by a worldwide EMP generated in a book we haven't read yet, so he can take his rightful place as king of the world. Batman is drawn to Cobra's lair and easily takes out the villain's thugs. Desperate, Cobra unleashes an energy blast in an attempt to kill the Doctor. But the Batman dives in to save her, deflecting the blast back at Cobra, creating a conflagration that consumes the madman as the Batman flies Imra safely away. Once in a safer place, William realizes Imra's resemblance to Tasmia is nothing more than coincidence, and that he must remain cursed. 
alone in Castle of the Bat while atoning for his past through the Batman. Very nice, very nice. You know, I like this issue. This is a this is a different take, obviously, on Batman. Uh, the entire idea of it being a dark, a literal dark night is, I guess, it's an apt one. It's uh, a very typical. You know, bringing in the Arthurian legend is a uh, is a nice way to sort of uh, link it to uh, another story tale. Uh, the artwork, uh, the finished art by Jansen. I don't know. I I'm not as keen on it as if it would have been uh, specifically Dan Jerkins himself, but I think it helps in in the way of grounding it with the sort of darker, moodier feel that you're supposed to get from the Daredevil comics or the uh, Frank Miller type drawn uh, year one type comics that uh, Ben Jansen would have worked on with him. So uh, it's it's an interesting tale. I mean. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to see how the rest of this uh, tangent run, the second wave of tangent run books run out. But for an opening book, it's it's okay. Yeah, I, I called it unique. Um, I didn't hate it, but I, I also didn't love it. I've never been huge into the Arthurian mythology. I mean, I like parts of it. I think I think all guys at some point in their life go through at least a short phase where they're into the you know the knights and shining armor and swords and saving the you know, damsel in distress or whatever, but you know, and I and I have enjoyed comics like Superman Cal and the premise of the Silent Night stories from the very, very early issues of the Brave and the Bold, but I'm just not a huge fan of the Arthurian and medieval fiction as a general rule. And while not being a fan of war comics didn't stop me from loving Metal Men, this one was you know, it it wasn't bad, but it was just kind of there at the same time and like I said, I, d- I didn't hate it. It's a solidly written story, and, and the concept is interesting enough. It's just not a character or a book that blew me away to the point that it left me really jazzed to see a second issue. But a, a lot of that's on me. It's just it's just not my particular genre. Well, I, I, I do have to agree with you. That's kind of how I felt. I thought it was I thought it was okay, but it didn't wow me the way the Adam book did and the way Metal Men did as the opening salvo for the first line of Tangent books. Uh, I will admit I have read ahead a little bit and there are things coming up that are, in in my estimation, as good as what we got in the first wave. But this one is just, it's just average, which is disappointing because you would expect Batman being the uh, sort of forefront character in the DC regular universe should be the forefront character in the DC tangent universe. But Mm -hmm. It just kind of comes off whoa, as whoa, kind whoa, of whoa, whoa, whoa. Forefront, oh, forefront character. Well, uh, secondary forefront after a certain uh, man with a big red S on his shirt. Okay, there you go. I'm okay with that. Oops. <laughs> uh, maybe we should uh, take a break, and I'll have to atone for uh, these uh, blasphemous statements by uh, beating myself with a cat of nine tails. You'll, what do you say to, about you'll that? Have to create a suit of armor. And never leave your house. Oh, well, I'm a giant podcasting nerd. I never leave my house yeah, anyway. Good enough. Fair enough. 
All right, we'll we'll catch you guys after the break. The Ultraverse Network begins now. Over 20 years ago, Malibu Comics debuted The Ultraverse. It may not have lasted long, but the creativity and quality of its titles and creators caught many readers' imaginations when it first appeared and in the years since. This network of fans celebrates the fun and excitement of The Ultraverse and its awesome writers, artists, and characters. Featuring three ongoing podcasts covering a variety of topics, including Nightman and Solitaire, our blog will feature regular coverage of The Strangers, Sludge, Firearm, Ultra Force, and all your other favorites. Look for Ultraverse Network on iTunes and visit our website at ultraversepodcast.com. We are giving Ultraverse fandom a jumpstart. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? Alright, and we're back. So let's go ahead and look at uh, the book uh, in its entirety. Let's start out with the cover. They've they've done a little change up with the cover to distinguish it from the uh, original run of the Tangent books. They've uh, made the white spaces a little bit uh, grayer. And I don't know if that's aesthetic for showing that this line of books is going to be a bit more – have a bit darker tone. But um, other than that, I like – the look of the Batman on the cover. I mean, if you're looking at a sort of knight character, it's interesting. There are a lot of design elements that I think you would probably see that look a lot like the Asriel or the Asbats character. Mm-hmm. And since we're not too far out of that 
that storyline. The uh, we're only like what three, two, three years removed from the end of the Night's Quest storyline. Uh, this character of Batman looking, having pointy, spiky things on his shoulders, and you know the radically spiky leg armor. It's kind of kind of brings you to that idea. I don't know. Well, it's okay. Do you get the impression, just looking at the cover, that they were hoping the Batman name would be a bigger draw than the character? Yeah, I kind of do think so. I think they they kind of thought, oh, Batman, people are really going to enjoy yeah. this. And the character was just kind of, Meh. It wasn't, it, you know, I to, to be honest, I would probably rather be reading, you know, Night's Quest than this. And uh, that's not saying anything negative about this. It just wasn't, it didn't engage me as much as the character of, of Azrael and the, the, the nightfall trilogy. You brought up the, uh, the gray instead of the white. I don't know if that's a, like a fifth color ink because it's very shiny and I'm not sure how they would have gotten that shininess with just the normal printing process. Yeah. Because, you know, holding it up to the light, uh, you know, just holding it flat on my, on my desk here, it looks like a typical gray, but if you get some light on it, it does have a bit of shiny silver look to it. So, Hmm. DC had they did that crossover in uh, I think it was '95 Underworld Unleashed, mm-hmm. where the main series had that fifth color ink for the main bad guy in that series, which was Neron. They used that green color, so that was just no- another gimmick from the '90s. But I don't know if that's the same thing they've done here, or could be. I I have no idea. You know, it it, it does it does give it a distinct look from the uh, the first run of the Tangent line of books. Mm. Oh yeah. Um. And we should also point out, I guess, um, before we get too far into the second wave, that this wave of books is actually shorter than the first wave. The first wave were all what, 32 pages? I think they might have been, even been 38 pages. Oh, 38 pages, okay. So, and, the, yeah, they, they were almost, you know, the, they, they, were, they were pretty good. They were almost double-sized issues. Yeah. So. Where these are just your, storm, your standard comic book length of 22, 23 pages. So. Mm-hmm. So the the stories are still are still engaging. They're still oh, yeah. good, but there's a lot more things drawn out in the first series. But you know, may, maybe the fact that you know it, it's like the second season on anything. It's like, oh, you did good the first season. Well, here you can do the second season, but you know we're gonna cut your budget. We're gonna cut your budget in half. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what you got. Um, pay, moving into the book, page two. I've got to tell you, Spider Girl twenty ninety nine is hot. <laughs> Isn't that Spider Girl twenty nine nine? I'm missing something here. Maybe, maybe. Oh, maybe. Oh, that's Prism. I and I guess she's she's essentially a completely spandex wearing, leaping around type Spider Girl person. Yeah. With you know, she's got the she's got the Venom mask kind of with mm-hmm. the the Venom type eyes. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I like her look. I mean, it, and part of it is it, it makes me wish Dan Jurgens had drawn more Spider-Man. I'm, I'm so accustomed to seeing him draw Superman or even Booster Gold that it's easy to forget how good Jurgens is at drawing this kind of character too. Mm-hmm. And, and and she, although her poses are very Spider-Man-like, oh, they're yeah. not they're not uh, McFarlane in their Spider-Man look. They don't look 
completely unnatural. They just look very dynamic. So Jerkins isn't taking the character and making making her do ridiculous things with her body. It's it's all just very lithe and very gymnastic and yeah. natural in it. Well, that page too. That that's a that's a, a iconic Spider Man pose. There, he just oh yeah, some web shooting from his fa- or her hands, I guess. But yeah, well, on page three, she does get a sort of analog to web as this sort of electronic rope thing that she creates mm-hmm. to bridge between buildings. But it's it's a neat character design. Uh, if if you if you don't have the comic. Uh, in front of you, like I said, it's a pretty much a full bodysuit with uh, her face mask looking much like Venom. But the uh, coloring is sort of a a light, sort of light aqua or light blue with a, a darker blue where the eyes go and little uh, rings of purple going around like uh, her calves and around her arms and like that. So it's it's an interesting design. Yeah. Um, right off the top. I hate to start off with a negative, but it does tie in with my kind of overall comments. I really dislike the narration. Yeah, that was the thing that I was kind of down with as well. The, that Arthurian dialect is one of the reasons I've never really gotten into that mythology. And it's, it's fine in, lim- in limited doses, but it can be, you know, it can be very poetic and beautiful. But to me, it's a slog to read through in long passages like this. Yes, and th- this was one of the things that sort of drug the book down for me was the the fact that it it feels like they fe- they they feel the need to put in all this Arthurian dialogue throughout the book, and it just does sort of drag the book down. You've got a book that's set in the then modern era, and to have to read all this dialogue with all the these and thous and stuff, it just it takes me out of it. But, you know, the character is supposed to be an Arthurian knight who has been in isolation all this time. So right. yeah, you've got to deal with it, unfortunately. So, yeah, that is the thing that diminishes the book some. Yeah. On a more positive note, this is obviously the first book from the first wave or the second wave. So publishing-wise, we are a year later, and the name check of Daylight Laboratories made a nice bridge back to the Doom Patrol issue. Mm-hmm. Even though we're reading these all at once, it was a nice bit of connectivity. Well, and you know, you get the the idea that the daylight laboratory, even though what what may have happened in the Doom Patrol was avoided, the uh, destruction and, or the problem that they had at the Earth's core was diminished because of what the Doom Patrol did. There was something that went on as well that Daylight Laboratories is having to deal with in the uh, global EMP pulse that's knocked out essentially all the electronics. Right. So. I'm certain. We'll, I, I'm guessing we'll be getting into that in later books. Um, my next note was on page four, which was a lot of. Page four is essentially a love letter to the movie Predator because the character of Prism is able to do something with uh, light manipulation to essentially make herself invisible, kind of a la the Predator. But uh, the Batman is able to use uh, thermal imaging, much like the Predator, to see where. You know, Prism is walking around in. So I kind of enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And of course, it gives me an opportunity to uh, tell people to get to the Choppa. So there you go. <laughs> we missed that opportunity last episode. Oh, we yes. We had the, the helicopter and the. <laughs> we did. You know, maybe we'll have to go back and edit that episode to put in a get to the Choppa reference <laughs> in there somewhere. Uh, um, page five, we get a reference to the Nightwing book that we haven't covered yet. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming this is the second wave Nightwing. We'll figure out what happened with I, this. And I, I assume it is because there wasn't an EMP 
impulse in the in the Nightwing book we did cover. So yeah. So well, that, that, again, that's nice that that the start of the second wave of books we're going to see that there's going to be that interconnectivity as well in this wave of the books. So right. That'll be interesting. Yeah. And we we have a nice allusion to the bat signal. It's mm-hmm. not quite clear if this is his shadow being cast or a light that he's shining, but I still like the uh, kind of the nod. Yeah, it's it, it is a, it is a similar to the bat signal. Uh, there's a bit more curvature towards the uh, right side of it. The uh, the other wing looks a bit bigger, but it's a nice it's a nice homage to the to the uh, original bat signal. Page six. Oh goodness, what a beautiful page this is! Oh yes, this is amazing. There's so much detail as the, the Batman crashes through this window and just an epic, epic splash. And you know, it, you know, we see uh, Prism shouting the Batman, and it's in the Batman's font, and all the little shards of glass pointing different directions, and it's just, and it, despite the fact that if you are in a suit of armor, you should not be able to move in this sort of lithe manner but eventually we realize that it's not a human in the suit of armor right but but regardless just seeing the splash is just amazing it's uh, this is this is poster worthy here plus there's magic involved which helps mm-hmm. his suit I oh guess, yeah to explain oh, yeah. away that but anyway jumping ahead to page eight i'm going to continue with the kind of the same praise of jurgens he did a good job in illustrating in, in really writing the character, too, to a lesser degree, these early scenes to not reveal that it was an empty suit of armor. Uh, you, you get a couple of very, very subtle clues here and there, but nothing that would really tip you off. Yeah, he, he kind of says, you know, you know, God has nothing to do with me. So you get the idea that perhaps there's some sort of curse going on with him. And, you know, as, he, as uh, Irma slaps him, well, of course, she's slapping a giant metal faceplate, so it would be understandable that she hurts her hand. He mentions that, you know, strike me as hard as you wish. I feel no pain worse than the hell that I endure every day. Mm-hmm. So you, you get that kind of idea. But what I had on this page was, you know, the uh, the, the trope of the character from the past noticing someone from the present that reminds him of the past. This is this is very common in, in fiction and a lot of fiction, you know, with characters, you know, you kind of get that in Dracula with a, uh, which is uh, ironically a Batman as well, uh, who, who realizes this person reminds him of someone that he fell in love with in the past. So it's, it's not an uncommon trope here, but I guess it works for the story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it works, I think. Okay. But I, I had a nerd moment on this page because the scientist is Imra Ardeen, a reference to Saturn Girl from the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, and see. His, his former love is Tasmia, which is another Legion reference with Tasmia Malor, who is Shadowlass. Oh, okay. Well, Shang should be all over this because <laughs> he he's uh, very fond of the uh, female Legion characters. See, uh, I, I'm not in the Rob Kelly camp. I just am not as knowledgeable about the legion as many people are so you're not a a legion hater no i'm not a legion hater but i i haven't read enough of them to know exactly who the characters are so mea culpa um i didn't have any notes until page 10 oh well for page nine i would like to say that i love that he has a shield 
armor and sword are, are kind of standard, but a shield... I don't know, you just don't seem to see that as much with characters. Captain America obviously has a shield, but, you know. The yeah, whole, that, whole costume design is actually pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, it, it, like I said, it's it's somewhat... You know, if you're reading this in in line with what happened with uh, the Azrael storyline and the Nightfall storyline, you can kind of get the idea that they're trying to mimic that. But it does have more of an Arthurian, you know, typical knight uh, aesthetic going on. So, yeah. yeah, the fact that he has a shield with him as well is, you know, completely works for the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a menacing look, but also one that's kind of heroic, kind of in the same way that. The actual Batman's costume is mm-hmm. is both, and it it does look medieval, but it in some ways it doesn't too. So, yeah, there 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 are parts of it, uh, the chest plate itself, and the the shape of the helm that has a kind of almost a kind of Doctor Fate type look to it. If you're looking at it on front, mm. uh, you know, is it, it does have that sort of comic-y feel rather than specifically a uh, you know a medieval knight type feel. Um, my next note is on page 10 where we get the the four panel progression of him picking up his helmet and realizing that there's no one there right. inside the Batman costume so you, you're already wondering well what's going on with this Batman is he some sort of mystical person is he you know, akin to the headless horseman, horseman? is he uh, a wraith or something what's going on with this so but then then it's kind of taken away by the uh batman taking flight with his ridiculously small wings <laughs> you know I, i'm sorry first of all it, if you're wearing armor unless you're iron man and have you know you know, repulsors to boost you away. You're not flying away by flapping your arms. I'm sorry, but comics, I guess we yeah. can just go with that. I, I assumed that those were the spikes that he had jutting up, and he just like flopped them around to make more of a visual. Oh, I really, maybe they weren't necessarily aiding his flight so much as just being okay. I could buy that. I could be wrong, but. You know, the the design elements work fine for me, but it in in practicality, I don't think this Batman can fly. But we will learn later in the book that he's sort of a mystical, magical, mechanical character. So, you know, I really don't have any comments specifically. Uh, My next real one, and this kind of attributes to the whole thing that you mentioned at the beginning with. uh, the Arthurian speak being kind of annoying on page 11. I felt that the dialogue between the two couples here that are making out on the white cliffs of Dover sounded kind of forced as well. Oh, fancy a snog. Oh, it's that sodding bat. It's, it's kind of like, it kind of feels like, like Dan Jurgens took, uh, you know, you know, just basically took you know. Oh, uh, what are they doing on uh, on 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 PBS? What's on that? Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of some. It's Downton not Abbey. Maybe, yeah, maybe on Downton Abbey. What are they, what are they doing on Downton Abbey? Is, is this the kind of dialogue they use? Look, yeah, put it in the book. That works. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but uh, I I don't really have 
all that much. The I like that the flashback sequence between pages uh, 14 through 18, where we see essentially William's origin mm-hmm. is related to uh, is related to King Arthur, and that it's all sort of in a the the color is somewhat muted, and the uh, borders for the for the uh, panels are kind of jagged. It gives yeah. it a, a distinction between the rest of the uh, comic, but yeah, and, and Jansen's mm-hmm. inks seem a little looser here too, which kind of helps set that part set mm-hmm. this, the flashback apart from the rest of it. Yeah, I, I really don't have any all that many notes until about page nineteen, the uh, introduction to King Cobra. What do you have between that? Uh, nothing. Okay. Just my journal comment about the art on the flashback. But yeah, King Cobra, you know, I'm sorry. He looks ridiculous, and it makes me not want to take him seriously as a threat. Uh, Yeah, I I was kind of – I was kind of off with King Cobra as well because if you think of him sort of akin to the sea devils but a snake, I guess he kind of works. You know, he's one of those mutants that uh, came forth because of the nuclear bombing, but – I don't recall cobras being denizens of Cuba or Florida unless he was like in a zoo or something. So right. his his explanation for this this book is of course comics. That's why he's here. And you know, he eh. he, he all the villains in the book in in really even the plot seem very incongruous with the hero being, you know, he's medieval and and they're all about the tech and you know, futuristic modern stuff, but then again, maybe that's the point to show Batman is very much a, a man out of time. But I, I didn't really get that from the issue. I'm, I'm just kind of inferring that into the issue, into it, you know, because of their different sources of inspiration. Yeah, I, I, I do kind of see that that there is a disconnect between this man out of time and the character of Batman and all these technical characters you know the the scientist who's trying to <clears throat> correct what happened with the emp pulse and this weird hybrid cobra person who's trying to take over the planet by regaining as much information as he can at the time so yeah. eh, eh. um page 20 I, I did like seeing batman swoop in and start fighting these guys and i kind of wish we would have seen more of that Rather than so much backstory, although the action in the flashback was great, but yeah, but if you're not into the uh, medieval storyline and the sort of Arthurian legend, it really yeah. doesn't do much for you. Yeah, so I, I can understand that. I think that's a lot of it with me. I'm just not really into the medieval stuff. So. Well, and, and that's completely understandable. I, I I've seen the movie Excalibur plenty of times. I've read uh, Mort d'Arthur. Uh, a, a long time back, I think probably in high school as well. So I, I enjoyed it, but it, you know, I, I would have rather seen more of the current day Batman rather than the backstory of why he had to isolate himself in this way or was isolated himself this way. Right. Uh, I do, uh, there is a piece of art here that I do like on page 22, that fourth panel there where we see. The uh, face or the uh, mask of the Batman and uh, Doctor Irma's face reflected in that. I think that's oh, a nice yeah. shot there. That's really good. But overall, you know, other than that, I really don't have all that much to say about the book. I mean, it was okay. That's that's about the best I can say for it. It yeah. didn't wow me 
which you think a Batman book should. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, in the next book that we're going to be covering will be uh, a bit more impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's, when we say it's okay, I, I don't want to sound like that's us or, or me being, you know, giving faint praise because it wasn't bad. It just not my favorite book, and, and again, a lot of that's on me. But I mean, and, well, I mean. I think it. I think. I think it kind of falls in with the sort of Sea Devil story. It was. It was a good story. The art was okay. There were good moments in there, but overall, it just didn't have the. It didn't have the punch of say the Atom or the Metal Men. It, and and like I like I reiterate again for a title that that bears the name of Batman, a character that's supposed to be one of the big guns in the DC universe, to have it just be sort of meh to use the vernacular is is kind of disappointing um yeah i agree with you it's not that it's bad but it's just not at the level that we would i think that you and i were expecting right and to jurgen's credit i guess you know as they talk about in the back matter batman's a pretty literal name and when you figure there's already a man bat which would be the most obvious reinterpretation it, it becomes a difficult task to come up with a, a new version for the tangent for the tangent universe. So I wonder if that was kind of a, a stumbling block too. Yeah, I can see. You know, it would be easy to turn him into you know a being much like the Sea Devils and have him be a sort of a hybrid or a mutant right. like that or whatever you would call it in the tangent universe. But um, but that's uh, man bat. So yeah, exactly. So they had to go. They had to work more with the entire Dark Knight thing and make him a knight. Which you know, as a concept, it works. But it just it wasn't the. I don't think it was the greatest execution, unfortunately. But I am interested in seeing how the character interacts with the larger tangent universe. So we'll see how that goes when it happens and. Maybe it'll give us a different view of the character. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm hoping so. Because it's, like we said, it's not bad, but it's just compared to what we'd seen at the opening part of the uh, the first tangent line, it just doesn't really stack up to it. Right. Uh, one more note before we close out the show. This was reprinted in the second tangent comics trade paperback, and it's the final story in that volume. So beginning next episode... You'll have to crack open a new volume. Yep. So if you're not picking up the, or if you don't actually have the actual Tangent Comics, uh, go see if you can track down the trade. Or, you know, I didn't really have uh, too much of a problem finding the comics. They're they're out there to be found. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to find them in in quarter bins. Sorry, Professor Allen. You may have to actually look around for them. But you know, you can definitely find them pretty easily. But yeah, next time out, uh, unless you have anything else to uh, talk about this one. Nope, I'm good. Okay, next time out, we're going to be moving into the uh, the other character that's the big-name hero in the DC universe. And he's uh, a character who's going to be a big-name hero in the uh, in the Tangent universe. Yes, we're talking about the Man of Steel, or Yay! technically the Man of Tomorrow over here in the Tangent universe. It's Superman. And like, like most of these characters, he's going to be vastly different than what we are used to in the DC universe. And I just want to say I am stupid excited to cover that issue. Uh, you so. know, I I will I will tell you I have I've read ahead 
the, this time out and I know what's going to be coming up and I'm looking forward to it as well. It's, it's okay. written by Mark Miller with art by Jackson Geis and it looks like painted art by Jackson Geis and it's a really good story. I think, I think this, I think the Superman story will make up for the sort of not really bad feelings, but just not pleasant feelings that we got with a Batman story. Right. So I, I'm looking forward to, to doing that here in a couple of weeks. But everyone, thanks for downloading the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in all your feedback. Keep writing those letters and posting over at greatcrypton.com. And we will see you here in two weeks for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, hosted by me, Michael Bradley, and me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places, most notably Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It also can be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review maybe even a five-star one. Every review helps more people find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about the books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Send us an email at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your comments on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. And Sean hosts a number of podcasts, including Just One of the Guys, Walking Dead Wednesday, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Listen to the Prophets, and Who True Freaks. And all of these shows can be found over at twotruefreaks.com. Speaking of two true freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the Amazon link at twotruefreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names.